right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Morning, afternoon, whatever it is today. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to The Well here at STSA. Happy that uh, you're joining us here today. You're coming in a, in a fun, fun, fun series that we're doing called The Invisible Hand of God, where what we are talking about is one of the best lessons of all time, which teaches us about how God's hand, even though we may not see it, is always working in our lives. And as I shared last week when we kicked off this series, it's a personal lesson that God taught me back what is it now? Seven years ago, back in 2010. And I'm so excited to share this lesson with you guys because I'm telling you, trust me on this one. If you get this lesson, if you can get this one, if you can understand that God's hand may not be always seen, but it is always active and God's silence doesn't equal God's absence, it'll transform your life and it'll give you new power, a new strength, a new courage to do great things for God in the meantime. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about the story of Esther. And I would imagine that most people are semi-familiar with the story, but just for the sake of those who aren't, we kicked off the story of Esther last week, and last week we had a lot of fun with it, because last week, the story of Esther in chapter 1 and 2 is a fun story. It's a story about basically a little orphan girl who is born as a Jewish captive in, in, uh, in Persia, where her people are basically enslaved in captivity. But she somehow, through the luck of the draw, wins this world, this, this nationwide beauty pageant to be the next queen. So we were talking about last week how it is the ultimate reality show because 400 contestants for one spot and the winner doesn't just get a date with the king, but the winner gets to be the queen of the nation. Esther won that competition and we ended the story last week with the king throwing a great party because Esther had, he had found his queen. Now the story, if it was a made for TV movie or if it was a uh, fable or a kid's book, it would after that say, that they got married, they had a party, and they lived happily ever after. But in this story, it's not happily ever after. And today we get the dun 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 moment of the story. Because the plot thickens today and evil enters into the story today. This story goes from Cinderella to 007 at the snap of her fingers. And Esther finds herself in the middle of this conspiracy to eliminate an entire race off the face of the planet to commit genocide in her country. And she finds herself in the middle of it and she has a choice. And her choice is very simple. Either stand up and speak or sit down and hope for the best. Either stand up, take a risk, put yourself out there and say, this is not right. Someone needs to do something about this. Or sit back and say, you know what? There's not really much I can do. So let me just protect myself, take care of myself. And if we're honest, this is a choice that all of us have on a daily basis. Maybe not as uh, glamorous, or maybe not as high profile as Esther. Maybe we're not in front of kings and rulers. Maybe we're not in courts and palaces. But every single day that we see evil in the world, injustice in the world, racism in the world, darkness prevailing in this world, we have a choice. And the choice is sit back, take care of myself, do nothing or stand up and speak. Now, it is somewhat fitting that this message is coming today. I don't know anything about anything. Anyone who knows me knows I don't watch news. I don't like I, ESPN is where I get my source of news. And when it makes it onto ESPN, then I know it's real big stuff. I don't know exactly what happened, but I late last night, it was about 1145, I heard that something happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I don't know all the details. Don't ask to get me to give a comment on what happened, what happened. But all I know 
is that there's a lot of evil and there's a lot of hate and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of violence. And for me personally, I have a little bit, it hits me a little bit because I spent four very memorable years of my life down in Charlottesville, Virginia, where I went to school. So for me, the thought of that city, which had such pleasant memories to me, pleasant memories that don't need to recite them all because the college years, my parents sitting right there. <laughs> the thought of that, e that city and all the evil and all the hate does something inside me. And the question that each one of us needs to ask is that when confronted with evil, when confronted with something in front of us where darkness is approaching, what do we do? Now, the easy answer is, what can we do? Right? What can we do? That's the easy answer. What can we do? But here's my proposition for today that I would try to, I'm gonna hopefully convince you this by the end. It's that just because there's nothing we can do doesn't mean there's nothing that we should do. Just because there's nothing that we can do doesn't mean there's nothing that we should do. And I want to show you the story of Esther and how she proves that force. And the reason why is because of this. Last week, our message from last week is that the invisible hand of God is always working. The invisible hand of God is always working. That no matter what you may see, the invisible hand of, all, of God is always working. And today what we're going to see, the reason why even when there's nothing that you can do, there's something that you should do, is because the invisible hand of, all, of God is always working and the means by which it works is people. The means by which the invisible hand of God works is people. Normal, ordinary people. Not famous people, not rich people, not politician people, not government people. Ordinary people are the hand and the feet and the eyes and the mouth of, the, of God. So when God wants to work and God wants to change and God wants to do, then God doesn't just come down and lightning. God doesn't just come down and shake stuff up. What God does is he sends people, people like me and you, and he fills those people up and then he sends them off. And he sends them off into a place and says, just do this one thing and be faithful in doing this one thing. Like we're going to see with Esther. Stand up and speak. Don't be silent in front of evil. Stand up and speak. And you never, ever, ever know what will happen when an ordinary person is willing to stand up and speak for what's right. You may not just see the invisible hand of God. You may be the invisible hand of God. And I want to convince you today that seeing God's hand isn't as much fun as being God's hand. What's the greatest joy I have in life? The greatest joy I have in life. The greatest joy I have in life is when I stand up here and I give a sermon. Not giving the sermon. That's not the greatest part. Is that when I finish it and I put my blood, my sweat, my tears, you know how much work I put it. Like I put a lot into this. And then someone comes to me afterwards and says, you know what, Father Anthony? What you said spoke to me. And I was going through this. And you know what? God touched me through what you said. That's it. That to me, that's my salary. That's my paycheck. I like my salary. I'm not saying to take that away, but I'm saying that's very good part of it too. That's what it's all about. Like that feeling. If you've never had that feeling that someone comes to you and says, you know what? I was down and I felt the encouragement of God through your hug. That, that's the greatest feeling in the whole wide world. Not to see the invisible hand of God, but to be the invisible hand of God for somebody else's life. And I'm telling you, you have a chance, every single person. You know how many times after we, uh, before the well, okay, after we finish the liturgy in the morning, I oftentimes stand up here and I say, you know, greet someone in the church that you never met before, say hello, give someone a hug, a hello, a smile, you never know what it'll do. I'm telling you, uh, I could point right now, because there's two right now that I know they're here amongst us. There are several people in this church who say that I'm a member of this church, 
And the reason is because I came and I was really embarrassed to come and I didn't know anybody and I felt awkward, I didn't know. And then somebody came and said hello to me and put me at ease. And I say, oh, that's very strange. I didn't know you're friends with that person. And they say, I'm not. I haven't spoken to that person since that first day. But that person opened the door for me to be a member of this church family. You never know. You never know what any small thing that you do may be the invisible hand of God working in somebody else's life. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. One of my favorite verses. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Translation, the eyes of the Lord running up and down these aisles up and down these seats and is looking for someone whose heart is committed to him. It says, you know what? I'm willing to be used by you and God will show himself strong. God will do mighty things in the world through the person who says, I'm willing to be used. I'm willing to be the invisible hand of God. I'm not just praying to see the invisible hand of God. I'm praying to be the invisible hand of God in somebody else's life. And my question to you is, did you ever think that could be you? You know what's sad to me? is that so many people, Christians, churchgoers, we live as if God is dead. We say God is alive, we believe that, but we live as if he's dead. We live in such a way that God will never do anything through me. God will never use me in any mighty way. Like me, I'm just a normal, ordinary person. You got like your Pope people, your Mother Teresa people, your Nelson Mandela people, like those kind of people. God uses those kind of people, but me, no, no, no. Like God is only alive in their lives, but not in my life because I'm just a piddly whatever. So what are you trying to do in life? What's your goal? What are you aiming at? Ah, get a job. Ah, make some money. Be successful. Okay, you got that. Then what? That's satisfying. No, that's unsatisfied. So maybe uh, find me a wife, find me a husband, have a kid or two, fence, whatever it may be. Okay, and then what? That's not satisfying. That's why we jump from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing because that doesn't satisfy us. Because you know what satisfies us? You know what hits that deep, 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 deep spot? is being used by God and God choosing me and God looking and finding a heart says, you know what? I'm going to use this person to do something mighty. And I say, you know what? I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be rich. I don't want a half a fence or whatever, maybe 2.5 kids. I want to be used by God. I want to be used by the king. And I'm telling you, God wants that for each and every single one of us. Let's go back to our story of Esther. Recap. The story of Esther has five main characters, but we've already voted one off the island. All right? We have King Ahasuerus, all right, who is the king of Persia, Persian Empire, most powerful empire in the world right now. He's the most powerful man. His old wife was Queen Vashti. He gave her the boot last week because she stood up and she was strong and she did what was right and she paid the consequences for it. But that doesn't mean that what she did was wrong in God's eyes, but she did pay the price for it. She got kicked out. But God, invisible hand, was working through that. And through the invisible hand of God, when Queen Vashti went out, opened a door for someone new to be the queen, and that's when the king did the search across the whole country, and Esther, the queen, Esther, the beautiful orphan girl, gets chosen as the queen. One out of 400 girls gets chosen in a very uh, uh, unlikely way. Now, Esther is a Hebrew. She's Jewish. She's living in a country of pagans, and she... Does, nobody knows that she's Jewish because if they did, they may not accept her. And her uncle Mordecai, who we're about to see in the story today, is the one who even advised her that said, when you go to the palace, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. So you're starting to see some seeds for what's about to happen as the plot thickens here today. We're going to pick up the story in the end of chapter 2. 
We're going to read a random, random story that has nothing to do with anything I'm going to talk about here today. But it will be important for next week's message when we get to chapter five. So just, we're going to read it and it's one of those like, put a pin in it kind of, okay, until next week. But just so we are, are thorough here. Esther chapter two, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, these are thugs, okay? Big Than and Teresh, they just have thug names, all right? Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Two thugs plotting to kill the king. Mordecai, Mordecai hears about it, tells his niece, Esther, says, go tell the king. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This has nothing to do with today's message, but we're going to see this next week. Chapter 3. Y'all ready? Here's the fun stuff. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. I just told you Mordecai saved the king's life. And the next verse says, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. That's kind of strange. The son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. And we'll see what that means in a second. And advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. We're going to try to read this story as if we don't know how it ends. Maybe some of us actually don't know how it ends, but it ends good. Don't worry. Okay. And we're going to read this story as it actually happened. Hey, wait a minute. God, we know that Haman is the bad guy. Okay, and we're going to see that in a second. And we know that the good guy, Mordecai, did something good. And the end result is because Mordecai did something good, Haman was promoted. What are you thinking if you're in watching this story right now, if you're watching this movie? Hey, God, wrong what? Like mistake. God made a mistake. Or God fell asleep. Or God doesn't know what he's doing. Or... Maybe the invisible hand of God works in ways that we don't understand. Verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Mordecai could smell this guy as a rat from the start. He said, I'm not going to pay this guy any homage. Verse 3. Or verse, skip to verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai, meaning the Jews. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. This guy's not messing around. One guy didn't bow to him. He had his feelings hurt. And his next course of action is, I'm going to wipe them all out from the face of the planet. We have to have a little background here. Why does, why does Haman hate all the Jews? Haman was an Agagite. All right, that's what we saw in verse 1. Agagite, without getting into the long history, means a descendant of a king who was called King Agag, which hundreds of years earlier, there was some drama between Samuel and Saul versus Agag. Agag was the king of the bad guys, the Amalekites, and Saul was the king of the Jews. And they went to war, okay, and Saul tried to spare King Agag, and then Samuel slaughtered him in a brutal kind of a way. Earlier, 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 go back to the time of Moses when he crossed the Red Sea, moving into the Promised Land, that wilderness experience, and he had a war with a nation called Amalek. Agagite equals descendant of Amalek, meaning their families or their tribes or their cultures, their people have been at war for years. My point is to show you this. My point is to show you this. 
Haman had no reason to hate the Jews other than one reason, which is what? This is very important. Why did he hate the Jews? Because he hated the Jews? Because he was taught to hate the Jews. Because from a young age, he was taught by his mom and his grandma and his great-grandma and whoever before, whoever before, whoever before, these people are not like us, they're bad. These people are wicked. These people are evil. We don't talk to them. We don't deal with them. And if you get the chance to take them out, you take them out. Nelson Mandela, I mentioned him earlier, once famously said that hate is not an inborn characteristic or feeling. It's a taught, it's a learned behavior. You have to be taught to hate. You don't grow, you don't, you're not born naturally hating another culture or another race or another ethnicity. And this guy shows us what happens when you have a little bit of a grudge and you pass that grudge on from generation to generation. Grudge turns to anger, anger turns to hate, hate turns to murder, murder turns to plan, conspiracy to genocide. That's why Jesus said, in the old days, you've heard it was said you shall not murder. I tell you, do not be angry. Because I know that anger eventually leads to murder. And that's what we see here with Haman. Amer Haman was a high official in the government, but he was controlled by a childhood hate that was just given to him by his ancestors. Sad situation. Verse 7. Haman doesn't waste any time. He decides he wants to wipe them all. You know how sometimes you say, I'm going to kill you, okay, and then you do nothing about it? Well, Haman, like, does something about it, okay? In the first month, which is the first, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Basically what happened is this. They said, as we all do, if you, know, if you want to justify your sin, you can find a verse in the Bible or a, I prayed and God opened the door. Like, you can justify whatever you want. God, but they didn't believe in one God, they believed in the gods. We want the gods to show us when they want us to wipe the Jews off the face of the planet. So they cast lots. They started on the first month. Means, let's roll the dice. And if it comes up lucky snake eyes or lucky sevens, then that means God wants us to kill them in the first month. First month, no. So what do they do? Second month. Third month. Fourth month. When did it finally come up the lucky numbers? The twelfth month. Means what? It means that God is always so good and always so kind and always gives us a way out. He gave them 11 chances to say, not a good idea. Not a good idea. January, no. Not, let's try, no. March, they got all the way to December. Like if it didn't get December, they started again in January. So God was like, okay, enough. Okay, we got to move the story on here. You know how when you want to do your sin, you can ignore every sign that God puts in front of you? Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all, the from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. And if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. There's no way... Ahasuerus, the king, will fall for this. The guy didn't even say that they did anything wrong. He's just saying, basically, they're not nice people. Let's kill them all. Let's see what our wise king Ahasuerus responds. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. No king, you are not that dumb, are you? You are that dumb. The same bozo king 
who wrote a decree that wives have to obey their husband. That was last week. Now just wrote a decree that this nation, who I don't even know their names, and they didn't even tell me they did anything wrong, not with any accusation against them, should be wiped off the face of the planet. And the bride who you so love, Esther, you just wrote her death sentence. Verse 12, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy and to kill and to annihilate. Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month. The king's couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. They just ordered genocide, wiping off of all these people, and then they had a drink. Great conscience there. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. Perplexed, why? Perplexed, bewildered, confused, because you just ordered this people wiped off the face of the planet without one crime listed. All Haman did was Haman was smart. What is every leader, every king's weak spot? That's where he hit him. What would he say about these people? He said, your throne is at risk. Every leader is paranoid. Every king was paranoid that someone was trying to take his position. And that's what Haman did. And this king fell for it. You're the people of God. You're sitting there in the city of Shushan. You're happily minding your own business, doing your craft. All of a sudden, this wicked man comes in and declares, y'all are going to be killed on a certain day. So your death has been decreed on a certain day by a royal decree. No one even knows your name. But because that's who your mother is and your father is on this day in the 12th month. So you're going to live in fear for 12 months. And then on this day, you will be killed. What's going through your mind? What's going through your mind? Where are you, God? Hello? Anybody? What happened to all the promises? You're my special people. Where'd that promise go, God? Where the, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You're the apple of my eye. Remember all those promises? All that stuff was fairy tale? All that stuff was made up? This is stories that our parents told us, but it's not really true? Or, watch this one. We messed up too bad for God to still care about us. We must have messed up too bad. We deserve it. God left us. We messed up too bad. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. Ask those same questions. Evil, darkness, wickedness. Where are you, God? Injustice. Where are you, God? Hate. Where are you, God? Don't you know what you're doing? Don't you see? Don't you have eyes? Let's be more practical. Let's be more honest. Forget about all the evil and justice in the world. We don't care about that. We do care, but we don't really care. Why you allow my boss to treat me this way? He's cheating me. You don't see that injustice? You don't see what my parents did to me? Abusive parent? Distant spouse? Friend stabbed me in the back? Where are you, God? Either you're no good or I'm no good. Or option three. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Either he's not good, you're not good, or he's got something up his sleeve. Or the invisible hand of God is just warming up. You know what I liken this to? The invisible hand of God. Who I always think of, I brought this up last week, but even more expand. A maestro, the conductor of the symphony. 
All right, the guy who just waves his hands and does kind of like this. You don't see that he's doing anything. You're over here, and you're all the different segments of the orchestra right here. And the, and the guy is saying, you know what, you know what I mean? Like, you know, bring it over here. And then the people over there are like, hey, remember me? Like, I got a good instrument. Like, I'm really good. Where's my stuff? And you're, he's like, shh, keep it quiet. And you're like, don't you care about me? And don't you love me? And he's saying, I got you in the right time. I'm working. I'm working. I got a plan. And if you stick with me, then at the right time, I'm going to make you, then I'm going to bring you. Then I'm going to make you, then I'm going to bring you. But if you walk out the door, before I turn back around, you go out and tell the whole wide world, man, that maestro doesn't care about me. That maestro just left me hanging there. That maestro just, all he cared about was other people. Really? Or maybe you didn't wait long enough. I'm show you a nice verse right here. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we we're in bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, one of the most important expressions in the scriptures is when the fullness of time had come. Fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. End of that passage, adoption as sons. Beginning of that passage, bondage under elements of the world, slaves. But slaves was never the plan. It was always adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. We say it this way in the liturgy. We say, in the last days, in the last days, you manifest yourself to us who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Here we are, death, shadow of death, darkness. And listen carefully to what it says. It doesn't say you showed up in the last days. That God is not Robin Hood who leaves us over there and then sweeps in at the end to save the day. No, 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 no. There's a difference between arrives at the last minute and reveals himself at the last minute. There's a big difference. God is always present. God is always working, but we just don't see it. God is not Robin Hood who sweeps in at the last minute. God is the guy who's standing behind you, following you around, and you, you know, you know, and then all of a sudden he's like, here I am. That's how God is. Okay, he's with you at all times, and he's working, and he's in the story of Esther, and there's darkness, and there's misery, and there's evil, and there's injustice, just like there is in Charlottesville, just like there is all over the world, just like there is in your life and in my life, but God never leaves us. He's right behind us, and in the right time, in the fullness of time, in the last days, he jumps out on the screen. But if you want it, two criteria, two criteria for him to step out. Number one is trust. Number one is trust. Like I said, that tuba player who walks out the room and doesn't trust that the maestro is coming back to him, he's going to spend the rest of his life complaining that the maestro doesn't know what he's doing. And in the end, it was the tuba player's fault. A wise person once said, God is never in a hurry, but he's always right on time. God is never in a hurry, but he's always right on time. And I believe that if you trust, if you wait, the second before the answer looks just like all the other seconds way before that. So an hour before, a half hour before, 10 minutes before, 10 seconds before, all kind of looks the same. But the answer looks completely different. And you're closer when you're 10 seconds away. So here's what I'm trying to say. When I'm standing here and I say, I don't know where the answer is, here I'm closer, here I'm closer. Here I don't feel it. I see the same circumstances. I'm not any closer. No, but you're closer if you trust the invisible hand of God. But then there's a second step. Not only trust, act. And this is what Esther teaches us today, is we must stand up and speak. We must fight for what's right. We must not be silent in the face of injustice. We can't. You know why? 
Because when you choose to act, actors get to go behind the curtain. And when you choose to act in God's story, then you say, hey, let's say, you know what? Okay, come back here. Let me show you what I'm really doing. You'd be like, whoa, I didn't know that. He's like, shh, don't tell the people who are just sitting in their chairs. Because they don't want to get into play, so they're never going to know. But you, you act, come back here. You say, I can't believe it. And God says, there's more of that. And the more that we act, the more we see the hand of God. That's what we're going to see here with Esther. Let's continue our story, chapter 4. That death has been decreed, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Every culture has their own way of mourning. Middle Eastern culture, always been a good one, okay? We don't just, like, we vocal and we visual, okay, like sackcloth and ashes, and they pour dirt on themselves, and, like, he's really doing it. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Why great mourning? Because there is no hope. There is no hope. If the king changed his mind, it's too late. Once it's in the decree, just like we saw with Vashti, once he wrote it in the decree, that's it. Decrees don't get changed. Once it's put into writing, that's it. The king cannot change his mind. So really, really, there is no hope in this situation. Esther, verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Esther, sitting in the palace, had no clue about any of this stuff. Because the queen doesn't just walk out and go to the market. Okay, the queen sits there, and she's secluded. Okay, and the servants, you know, go whatever she needs. So the servant comes and says, hey, let me tell you what all is a buzz in the city. And the servant told her, and she was deeply distressed. So what she does is she says, I need to talk to Mordecai, my uncle. But he can't come in and she can't go out. So she sends a messenger. Go ask Mordecai what's going on. Mordecai tells the messenger this and this and this and this. And he tells her everything that happened. He gives her a copy of the decree. And he also gives her a command. Verse 8. Mordecai also gave him, meaning gave the servant, a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. And that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. Mordecai says, no problem. You're his wife. Tell him bad decision. And today... Okay, if we're living in the world today, this is an easy one. No matter what the guy decided, you tell her, and before day, the daybreak, it's been changed. But Esther understands something that maybe we didn't quite understand. Verse 11. It says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. What she basically tells us is this. Okay, before you jump down her throat for being a coward, she's not being a coward. She's doing the smart thing. Wives then were not like wives today. Okay, wives then, sorry, were like, like you saw the, how, how the, 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 the pageant to choose her. He gets rid. Wives were not seen as people. They were seen as servants. They played a role. The king would call upon the wife to play her role when he wanted her. Then he would send her away. But wives didn't walk in to like the, the, the cabinet meeting and say, excuse me, can I talk to you, honey? Like, that's not how it worked. Anyone who goes to the king uninvited is death. You can't just walk into the king and say, yeah, five minutes. Like, it's death, even for the queen. 
And what would she say when she got in there? Oh, by the way, I'm Jewish too. Please don't kill us. Like, what? Watch what Mordecai says next. We're going to see the power of trusting and acting, trusting and acting, trusting and acting. First from Mordecai. And Mordecai is her uncle, but he's like her parents. He's like her dad because her parents died when, when, when they were young. So Mordecai raised her. And look what a father says to his daughter. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely sound at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Trust! But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We're going to break this one down. This is going to take a little bit of time. Most parents would say what? Most parents would say what to their daughter who has now chosen this queen, and nobody knows she's Jewish, and she's in the palace. Say what? Run and hide. Protect yourself. Don't tell anybody you're Jewish. We're all old. We're going to die. Protect yourself. Every dad would say that. Protect yourself. Don't let them know. You're the queen. Don't let anybody know. You, your, life, your whole life in front of you. But Mordecai saw there was more to the story than meets the eye. He saw that the invisible hand of God was working. I don't know what he's doing, but he took you from over there. He got rid of this queen over here. He put you in her spot. He let this guy come here. And then all of a sudden, so I'm doing the math, and I don't know what's happening, but God put you in this place. So you have to act. And he tells you two things in this one sentence right here. First thing he says is, don't you think for one second that what you have the palace, the safety, the protection, the servants. Don't you think for one second that you earned any of that? That the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And how often is it in life? How often is it in life that God gives us? And then when he asks for us to do something with it or ask for it back, we say, no, thank you. Don't touch my stuff. Don't touch my stuff? How many times God would give you a nice position, work, promotion, career, business, whatever. And it says, be generous with your money. It's not all for you. He said, don't touch my money. Do what I want with my money. I'll help who I want to help. I'll donate what I want to do. I'm not donate. It's my money. Oh, really? God gives you a relationship. Boy of your dreams. Girl of your dreams. And then God says, but don't touch before marriage. You say, why God want to get it all in my business? My business? How often we receive a gift of God and he asks for it back and we say, no, thank you. Second thing Mordecai tells her, I love what Mordecai says. Deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You know what he tells her? He says, look here. You have a chance to be the invisible hand of God. I know God is going to deliver his people. How could Mordecai be so confident? How could Mordecai be so confident that God will save his people? The decree is written. The decrees can't be changed. How is Mordecai 100% confident? Even though he was in sackcloth and ashes, how was he so confident? You know why? Because he's read a book called the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, you will see that this is not the first and it is not the last time that God's people are sentenced to death. That God's people, that someone came to try to wipe them off the earth. This is not the first time that God's people have been under attack with no hope. And every single time God delivers his people. How does he deliver his people? Not with thunder, not with lightning, not with earthquakes. He delivers his people by people. He brings up people. 
And what Mordecai is saying, God will deliver his people because he always comes through. And maybe you're the person to do it. Esther responds, verse 16. Send, she sends this message back to Mordecai. She says, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. James Bond got nothing on Esther. If I perish, I perish. That's a great way. Basically what she says there is my life is not my own. I will stand up and act. And if I die, I die. I would rather die for God than live for myself. And that's why Esther is the most beautiful woman. Esther had no reason to believe God would save her. Esther, in her mind, she is going to commit suicide right now. She's going into the king, and the likelihood is that the king will have her killed on the spot. So all the other Jews get to live for 12 months, but I'm going to go in right now, and most likely, I'm going to end this story getting beheaded or whatever the king does, thrown in the dungeon, whatever it may be. When there is evil in the world and there is no hope, it is easy to get cynical and say, what can I do? But like I said in the beginning, I want to try to convince you that just because there's nothing you can do doesn't mean there's nothing you should do. I don't think Esther's responsibility before God was lessened because her chance of success was minimal. Say that one again. Esther's responsibility before God was not lessened just because her chance of success was minimal. Meaning that God expects us to trust and act in such a way that we know that we're not on our own. That it's not just my action plus my action. It's my action plus God's invisible hand. And sometimes, sometimes God is up to something. And he just needs us to be willing to stand up and say, you know what? I'll be part of that. I always think of the story of the widow with the two mites. Everyone knows the story of the widow with the two mites. In Mark chapter 12, a lady came. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw what the people put money into the treasury. He saw what money people put into the treasury. Is that what it says? He didn't say what people put into the treasury. He saw how people put into the treasury. And there's a difference. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. Watch this. Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Sorry, Jesus. You can say she had a kind heart. You can say she's more, but you can't say more. You can't say more. Someone put in 10, she put in two. You can't say more. Like you could say anything other than more. You can say better. You can say kinder. You can say bigger smile. You cannot say she put in more. He says more. You know why? Because in Jesus's eyes, effort equals more than result. Effort equals more than result. And what matters to him is not the result. She did put in more because he wasn't counting the pennies. He was counting the effort. So she did put in more. He wasn't looking at the final result, the net balance at the end. That's how we are. We would say, no, the one who put in the, the more, let's bring him on stage and clap for him and give him a plaque and make him donor of the month. Like, that's how we would do. But Jesus said, I don't care about the, the end result. I care about the process. And her process was more. Her effort was more, even though her result may not have been. You, me, may never have a big impact in this world. We may never preach to thousands. We may never give millions to charity. 
We may never solve world hunger. We may never end racism or apartheid like Nelson Mandela did. We may never free uh, a, a, a nation. We may never do anything big. But that doesn't mean that your sacrifice is any less to God. You may not solve world hunger, but you may be very generous and charitable with the limited means that God has gave you. And I'm telling you, if you are faithful in what is little, that's big in God's eyes. You may not preach to millions, but like I said earlier, you may hug someone at the right time, encourage someone on just the right day, pick someone up, smile on just the right day. You may never end racism, but you may build one bridge, just one. And you never know where that bridge will lead to. And I'm telling you, big, little, doesn't, God doesn't see that. What God sees is effort. And even Matthew 10, 42, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, a cup of cold water, the one thing, everything costs money in this world, the one thing that you don't have to pay money for is a cup of cold water. And he's saying even the cheapest, most insignificant thing, if there's effort, even that, I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. Here's my question for you. What could God do through you if you were willing to trust and act? What could God do through you if you were willing to trust and act? What could God do through you if you said, you know what, God? That's it. I'm not holding anything back. You say I do. I'm willing to go out of my comfort zone. I'm willing to speak when I don't want to speak. I'm willing to act when I don't want to act. What could God do through you if you were willing to trust and to act? Maybe God could solve a dysfunctional family problem through you if you speak up and act. Maybe what God could do is he could change an entire office culture, a work environment through you if you speak up and act. Maybe God could answer the prayer of somebody, a mother, a father, who has been praying for years through you. A mother or father who's praying for their son or daughter for years. You could be the answer to that and you may never even know. But maybe you, like Esther, God says to you, that maybe you were brought to blank for a time like this. Maybe you were brought to this office for a time like this. You were brought to this family for a time like this. You were brought to this church for a time like this. You were brought into this social circle for a time like this. You were brought into this city for a time like this. What could God do for you? Next week, we're going to see the result of Esther speaking up. But what I want to say and I hope you can understand me on this one, that really it doesn't matter what happens next. It doesn't matter. The end result of the story is good, that God saves his people through Esther. But what I want to say is if Esther gets killed when she goes to the king, it, makes, it doesn't make her effort any less. It doesn't make what she did any, any, any less valuable in God's eyes. She took a step of faith, and she said, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I'm willing to die for what's right. And as far as I'm concerned, today, Esther dies. And even though we're going to see her come back to life, that doesn't make her death any less. And you know why I say it that way? There's a parallel here between Esther and somebody else who laid down their life for the sake of his people and did come back alive. And I won't give it away who it is, but I'll just tell you this. The next verse Chapter 5, which is we're going to start next week. We just finished chapter 4. Verse 1 begins as follows. 
Now it happened on the third day. And that stuff ended by accident. And I'm telling you that Christ's death was not made any less significant just because he rose from the dead. Like the fact that he came back to life, be like, okay, the death was nothing. He came back to life. No, no, no. The death is the death. The fact that the result is he is alive, that, that the death is the death. And Esther is the same. The fact that she comes back to life and the fact that she's successful has, not, has no bearing on this. All that matters is that she was willing to die for God versus live for herself. The verse that I showed you in the beginning. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout this whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is working. The invisible hand of God is always working. And he is today looking for a vehicle to use to be his hand. God doesn't speak through dreams and visions and lightning and thunder. God doesn't work through meetings and programs and committees. God works through people. People who say, I trust, I believe, and I'm willing to step up and act. And I'm asking you, are you willing to trust and to act? I'm telling you from experience, I'm telling you from experience, the greatest thrill in life is to be in the hand of God. To see that God is painting a picture and I'm the paintbrush. Okay, and here I am, and God's doing this. That's the greatest feeling in this world, and that's better than any high that any drug can give you, than any success, any fame, any anything, is to be used by the king of the universe to say, I want to use you to make an impact in someone else's life in the world. Ain't nothing better than that. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you with all of our heart that you would see anything good inside any one of us and be willing to use us. Lord, there's so much bad inside of us, but somehow you see good. To help us, Lord, to trust you, that even though we don't see you in this world, in our circumstances, but we trust that you are working in ways that we'll never understand and we'll never comprehend, Lord, that the, the magnitude of what you're doing and, and the ways in which you work. To help us to trust you, Lord, and give us the strength and the courage to act, to speak up, not change the world, but maybe change our world and change our tiny little circumstances and a little environment and speak up for what's right and trust, Lord, that there's no greater feeling in this world than to be used by you. We pray these things in the mighty name of your son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all of your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.